0: Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk about a new book that looks at some aspect of Europe and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Germany 1945, From War to Peace, and its author is Richard Bessel. It's a book that I came across in Doha Airport a month or so ago, Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk about a new book that looks at some aspect of Europe and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Germany 1945, From War to Peace, and its author is Richard Bessel. It's a book that I came across in Doha Airport a month or so ago, almost by accident. By the time my plane had taken off, I was thoroughly hooked. It's a terrific book that bridges the brutal last years of the war and the challenges of the immediate post-war experience in Germany, one of the most extraordinary periods of modern history and a time that had an enormous impact on what followed and what is still happening in the Europe of today. I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, joining me on the line from over in Freiburg in Germany is Professor Richard Bessel, the author of Germany 1945, From War to Peace. Uh, good, good morning, uh, Professor. Yeah.
1: Yes. Good
0: morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, I mean, I, as you know, I, I, we've already spoken a, a couple of times about how much uh, I enjoyed the book, and and I enjoyed hearing about uh, reading about it mainly as, as this kind of bridge from the end of the Second World War and and the challenges that were, were were thrown up from that, and how that then set Germany onto a onto a path that some would argue it followed in its in its post-war years. Uh, so I found it a fascinating book. I can't wait to hear a couple of your answers that we're going to go through. But uh, can you start off perhaps by just telling us a little bit about yourself um, and, in particular, how you became so interested in this particular subject?
1: Well, I, I became interested in it really from, from two angles, and I think this is something which is true for, for many, if not most, historians, that there's a, there's a fair amount of autobiography in almost everything we write. Um, on, on the one hand, to begin with, Um, and one can see this if one takes a look at the book, it was a a search for my own father. My father fought in in the Second World War, and he was actually there in in Germany in 1945 in American uniform and was one of the soldiers who was at the liberation of Dachau. On the other hand, the professional side of the thing has to do with my own longer-term interest in modern German history, and in post-wars. And I've done a lot of work on the aftermath of the First World War in Germany, and it was, in a sense, the logical extension to look at the aftermath of the Second and to draw comparisons and contrasts between the two. And there's another, I think, important historiographical point. Twenty, thirty years ago, thirty-odd years ago, Um, When I began doing research in modern German history, the interest in the focus was more on how Germany got into dictatorship and got into war. And I think more recently, the focus has rather shifted um, to how Germany, and not just Germany, but other countries as well, being a renaissance and um, the historiography of Eastern Europe as well as of, of the Far East, how they got out. And I think the problem of how you get out from under the horrors that people experienced in the Second World War is a really fascinating history and how this became essentially the prehistory for what came afterwards.
0: There's a fantastic photograph of your uh, father receiving the what is it the the bronze star in the centre of the Heidelberg on the 29th of May 1945. So, so yeah. it, sorry, just to stay with this personal aspect, what was his particular uh, role in the war, as as you might say it?
1: Well, I th- it was I think as with with many soldiers, um, it was varied, extremely varied. Um, He was trained in winter warfare, he was a nearsighted, he was nearsighted, trained in winter warfare, so of course they made him a sharpshooter infantryman and sent him to North Africa.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's wearing glasses in this photograph as well. Um,
1: And then he uh, fought in in Italy, um, lost contact with his unit when he was in Sardinia, was hauled into another unit and uh, was... As a result, amongst the first soldiers, to hit the beaches in the invasion of southern France, which fortunately for him was unopposed. He went up the Rhone in 1944. They discovered in late 1944 that he'd been trained in winter warfare, and so he was involved in the campaigns in the Vosges. And then in early 1945, he came across southern Germany with the Sixth Army Group, doing various things involved in the in in commando unit. They tried to work behind lines to get... Um, documentation out of German town uh, halls and so forth for future war crimes trials. And he also, for a time, was uh, a general's driver. Um, and you can see in the picture of the book, he's uh, being given the medal by uh, General Devers, who was the head of the Sixth Army Group. And as I said, he ended his war um, in Europe at Dachau, um, mm. convinced at the time that he would then be sent to Japan.
0: Which was a common fate for quite a few um, yeah, well, German, was, uh, quite a few American was, servicemen. Yeah,
1: this, this was the assumption that, uh, you know, that uh, after Germany, they would all be sent to Japan, and that would be even worse.
0: Mm. Can you just paint a picture of what Germany was like in these last few months of the war? I think that the, th- there's one statistic which is fairly well known that, that you cite, and you talk about the fact that in those last few years last few months of 1945 before May and the capitulation more Germans died just in those few months than in any other and half the population lost at least one family member by May I mean obviously that that last statistic is is counting the whole war but it just shows the almost the escalation of devastation until it almost reaches a crescendo in these final months
1: yeah this is the starting point of the book um, and the starting point of the book is with the, I think, astounding fact of the enormous casualties at the end of 1944, and particularly at the beginning of 1945. The highest number of casualties that the Wehrmacht suffered during the entire war uh, were suffered in, in January of 1945, with the well, which was really the beginning of the end, with the vast Soviet offensive which began in the middle of January uh, 1945. During January 1945, the Wehrmacht lost dead 450,000 men. And when one considers that the Red Army probably lost even more, and that this was the time when the British and the Americans were suffering their greatest losses, I think we can put this together. and And in addition to that, this was the point at which the bombing reached its peak, um, because by that point, the uh, German Luftwaffe was powerless to to stop uh, Allied incursions, and the, the, the British and the Americans had unchallenged air superiority. So that I would guess that in January 1945 alone, more than a million people died violent deaths in Germany. That is more than ever before and ever since. And in the first uh, four or four and a half months, of 1945, more Germans, more German soldiers died, than in 1941, 1942, and 43 put together. And in January 1945, roughly three times as many German soldiers died as in January 43, which was the month of Stalingrad. And I think this this is the this is the point from which one has then um, uh, to try to understand what happened. In and, and around Germany, uh, this was a an orgy of violence, the like of which had never really been seen before. Um, that, uh, that the the, the vast uh, amount of casualties were those which occurred in the last months of the war, and it was also this was the time in which finally um, services broke down, infrastructure was destroyed post office no longer worked, people couldn't communicate with one another, the railway system no longer was working, food distribution systems were gone. Um, I I think one is seeing at the beginning, in the the first months of 1945, the breakdown, the physical breakdown, as well as the moral breakdown of of an advanced industrial society. And I think one also should not forget what was going on in the camps. Now, I'm not speaking about the extermination camps and the murder of the vast majority of, East, of, of European Jews in 41, 42, and into 1943, but if we just take a look at the concentration camp population, which was something over 700,000 at the beginning of, of January 1945, this was the period in which the highest casualties were suffered amongst prisoners in the concentration camps as well, provisioning broke down, and uh, I mean, the, the entire system was, was breaking down, and the cruelties, uh, horrible as they'd been before, became even worse. I mean, this is, as I tried to describe, to describe in a book, I'm really a descent into hell
0: and um, it's very important to note that unlike most conventional wars this wasn't just going to end in a, in a routine defeat a, a, a surrender by one side but it was they were aiming for a complete surrender uh, a totality mm. of defeat which uh, as you also uh, point out in the book it was the, uh, Germany was the first modern nation to achieve such an utterly total defeat and it, it, in a sense it's the totality of this defeat that, that, that sets the tone for much of what happens later on in the book
1: mm. That's right. And when one thinks about it, it, is, it really is remarkable. I mean, they keep fighting even when the Red Army is in the Garden of the Reich Chancellery. And not merely that. I mean, they keep fighting even beyond that. I mean, Breslau doesn't surrender until a few days after um, the, uh, Berlin is taken by the Red Army. I mean, not even the Japanese did that. Uh, and this really yeah, is it's, it's, it's utterly remarkable. Uh, an utterly remarkable thing, however, I think one also needs to think about surrender in a slightly more differentiated, variegated way because surrender isn't something that just happens at one moment. I mean, various people surrender in different times, in different places, in different ways, and it's been a commonplace in the discussion of the end of the Second World War to say that the Germans kept fighting to the bitter end against the Red Army, but less so in the West. I think that this has got to be um, fought at least to some extent, because the Wehrmacht continued to fight, and to fight fairly effectively against the British and the Americans till March 1945. And as I see it, when one gets into April. Um, then things uh, really quite completely fall apart. no supplies, people realize the game is up, and obviously they'd rather end up in British or American uh, prisoner of war camps than be taken by, by the Russians. So that one sees, certainly by the second half of April 1945, relatively little resistance against the British and Americans. But up to that point, we've been fighting bitterly against Western allies as well as against the Red Army. But um, so, I, mean, I, I think that the, the picture needs to be uh, needs to be broken down from place to place from time to time. And there's one further thing that I, I would suggest, um, and I know this is a, a little bit con- controversial, perhaps, and that is I think that in a perhaps rather horrible way, the bombing finally succeeded in breaking German morale in the last phases of the war, not. Until, uh, not up until 1945, but in 1945 when people realized that not merely that they're not going to win. And I'm convinced that the German, certainly German leadership thought that it was possible, if not to win, at least somehow to rescue a, 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 an armistice, a truce, a ceasefire until January 1945. Then the roof caves in. And then everybody realizes the game is up. The game is up. And it's at that point when people feel there no longer is point in suffering the horrors of the bombing any longer, because there's no point. It's just a matter of prolonging the war. And prolonging the war means prolonging the suffering and, and increasing the casualties for no purpose whatsoever.
0: Can I ask just a very quick question um, about the idea that there was going to be further resistance, for instance, down in the uh, in the German and Austrian Alps? And of of course, we had the, the spectre uh, of of a so-called werewolf organization yeah. of of uh, former Nazis who would form a, a kind of underground resistance, almost like a, a partisan warfare against the uh, the occupiers. Um, what's your assessment of all of that?
1: Well, this was something that the Allies uh, were particularly concerned about, but it was largely a delusion. It was partly a a propaganda threat by Goebbels and by Himmler, but very, very little of it materialized. The only um, well-known instance of um, Wehrwolf terror, I guess you could call it, was the assassination in Aachen. In late 19- Aachen was the first German city um, to be captured uh, by, by the Western Allies in, in late 1944. And the mayor whom they installed um, in, in, in the Rathaus in Aachen was assassinated uh, by Verhof. But that was it. And from that point, um, I think it was largely a concern, a threat, rather than uh, a reality. And the reactions to um, what happened in Germany, one, if one takes a look at how um, certainly the Western Allies reacted to uh, what they saw in Germany they were surprised really by the passivity of the population and they had assumed that here was a population which had been indoctrinated for 12 years by vicious dictatorship with a racist ideology that, and that organized into terrorist sales and that people were going to be putting bombs into haystacks that would blow up when when British or American troops were walking by and so on and so forth. And what they got was a largely frightened and passive population which was essentially concerned with somehow surviving day by day. Things were slightly different in the East. Um, Not different in the sense that there was a a, a German underground fighting against the Red Army but different in the sense that the Russians instrumentalized the so-called verbal threat in order to arrest a hell of a law, um and to place them in camps, to say that, this, that they were involved in underground activity. And it was used, I would say, instrumentalized in order to um, impose uh, political control Uh, during 1945 and into 1946. But that's a rather different thing than suggesting
0: Mm. that it actually existed. So let's move on to the circumstances after the surrender, after the final surrender. Um, Certainly looking at Germany itself, you have an enormous amount of devastation, physical devastation. You have, uh, well, we've just been talking about the... uh, frankly absurd and astonishing number of casualties you have a lot of uh german soldiers taken as prisoners of war uh, obviously many of those in uh, especially soviet captivity were not to see germany again for many years if at all um you had a lot but of disloc- just sorry can I just interrupt there? yes one, one of course
1: about, with, with the the prisoners of war the vast the majority of prisoners of war um ended up in the hands of the western allies Mm. Not, uh, not, not amongst the Russians, because they were particularly keen to move west yes. and, and to get in the hands of the British and the Americans. Yes. So that it's it's the minority who end up in in the hands of of, of the Russians, and those who do end up in, in the hands of the Russians do at the end of the war. Yes. Sorry.
0: Uh, no, no problem, because I, I, I personally find the, the whole prisoner of war situation quite fascinating. And, and I haven't actually come across many books or sources in English that really deal with the situation of the prisoners of war, especially the ones that, that, that found themselves over in, uh, in various bits of the Soviet Union. But I remember I was, over, I was over in Tbilisi. Uh, capital of Georgia a few years ago uh, for the BBC, and the, uh, uh, the 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 metro which looks in so many ways similar to the me- metro and even smells the same as the metro in Moscow. Um, apparently, that was all built by prisoners of war after the war. So uh, it, it's one of those things that that that, that really had an impact. <laughs>
1: Now, I'm not sure that Tbilisi, the, the Tbilisi metro was built by prisoners of war, but I mean the city of Minsk, the capital right. of today's Belarus, was built by Soviet, uh, by, by um, German prisoners in Soviet uh, hands after the war.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, would
1: Minsk, but that's perhaps one of the most prominent uh, cases of this.
0: I, I know this is a bit of a diversion, but it's such a fascinating subject. And it kind of pushes on beyond 1945. But when some of the prisoners from the Soviet Union started to straggle back into Germany, often well into the 1950s, what kind of uh, reception was there for them? Um, because people's lives will have moved on, Germany had moved on, uh, and and often these people had gone through what must have been quite a, a quite a horrible experience over those few years.
1: Yeah. You know, sorry to be sort of the, the, the archetypal historian to say, well, it's rather more complicated than okay. that. But it depended very, very much on where they came from, when they got back, what you know, what conditions they had had to endure as prisoners of war, where they came back to. Okay. Um, and it, it mattered a, a great deal. For, for example, the position of prisoners of war they come from what had been Eastern Germany. We also also talk about Eastern Germany and the refugees from Eastern Germany. Didn't have anywhere to come back to. I mean, somebody who had come from, say, Kreslau or Stettin or Königsberg, mm. you know, East Prussia or Pomerania, couldn't go back home because uh, their home was no longer part of Germany. And so they were displaced in, 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 a, in, a, in a double set. There are many people who were in Soviet prisoner of war camps in the, in, in the late 1940s, who, in order to get out, signed agreements to become members of the East German police forces in the Soviet occupation zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found themselves, they got out of uh, Soviet first war, they found themselves uniformed again um, when they were in the Soviet occupation zone. Many other people came back later, and as they found, their, uh, their families had moved on. Uh, their women had moved on, um, and had formed other leaders. Many people um, who had been left behind at home didn't know whether their um, whether their men were alive or dead. And uh, it took years before people were able to find out. It depends very much on where they where they were and where they came back to. And one also shouldn't uh, shouldn't forget that. Um, conditions amongst prisoners of war, for example um, in France, or taken by the French um, also were not particularly rosy.
0: Okay. But um, one thing that you mentioned there about the shifting of borders and uh, places like Breslau and, and Stettin and Königsberg and so on, perhaps brings us on to the, something that, that that was very much a feature of Germany in, in May 1945 onwards, which was well worth uh, exploring further, and that is the the staggering number of displaced people within Germany. Uh, we're, we're talking about Germans who are who are obviously shifting away from areas uh, of Germany that are no longer German. You've got people fleeing the Red Army, for instance. You have people bombed out of their houses in, in big industrial centers like Dresden and Hamburg. And then you have a large number of foreign labourers who had been drafted yeah. into the German workforce throughout the war, and n- not to mention the number of, for instance, Jewish survivors from the camp. Um, can you put any figures on this, just so that we can get our heads around that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there, there, are, there are lots of different categories, and I think one, one needs to, to look at them separately. Um, to begin with, the, num- the, the number of, of German I refugees and expertise. I mean, again one has to differentiate between people who start fleeing the East already in, in late 1944 and early 1945 from the people who were expelled um, from the spring of 1945 and 1946 and into 1947. This constitutes what probably is the largest forced removal of human beings in the history of the world. Um, It's roughly equivalent, I think, to what happened uh, in the course of Indian partition. We're talking about roughly 12 million people who um, are forced to leave their homes east of the Oder Neisse, in Sedateland, in the Zietenburg, and various places of what had been German settlements in Eastern Europe. And as I say, some of them come back before the uh, surrender in May 1945, some of them come, uh, come back after. Some of them don't come back until 46 or or come back, come in in 46 or 47. Um, And another interesting, and I I think actually quite important aspect of this, which I didn't realize until I started doing research for the book, was that well over a million Germans from the East who had fled ahead of the Red Army went back eastwards across the Oder Neisse after May 1945 because I mean, they didn't realize that this was going to become the new border. They'd fled the Red Army in the expectation that you know the Red Army would roll over their communities, and then they would go back to them in the same way that many people in West Germany had done when the British and the Americans were coming. And so many of them went back to what they thought were their homes, and then they get re-expelled um, in 1943. And these are the people who, in many respects, the most difficult time, because they they land, particularly in the Soviet occupation zone. The jobs are gone, the housing is gone, and so forth. And they're in a particularly difficult uh, in a particularly difficult position. Also, um, something which people tend to forget is the fact that the um, Soviet authority, Soviet military in the, in the Soviet occupation zone, was quite concerned about the huge numbers of people coming from the East and feared that they weren't going to be able to feed them, that they send hundreds of thousands of back across the oder night to have them dumped in Poland. They don't want them either. I mean, that's the first category. You mentioned displaced uh, persons, and I think that one needs to be a bit more specific about the terminology to place this, DP's discrimination. Displaced persons um, was not a term which was applied to Germans. It was applied to the foreigners. Um, when we think about the the activities of UNRWA and so forth in dealing with the refugees, and there were millions of, of them who had been, you could say, stranded in Germany. Increasingly, from early 1945, uh, the controls over them had broken down. That many of many of the factories in which that they worked, I mean, a number of them worked in agriculture, we'll leave that aside for the moment. But many of the factories in which they had been working no longer were functioning, they didn't have fuel, they'd been bombed out and so on and so forth. And so increasingly already before May 1945, there are tens of thousands of foreign laborers who are no longer really under the control of the Germans, no longer working, underposing, from a German point of view, um, an increasing threat uh, within the country. Now there is a tremendous concern um, in the spring, summer, autumn of 1945 to get these people back home and get them out of Germany. And this is largely done by the end of 1945. The vast majority of the millions of DP's who had been in uh, in Germany during the war, fueling the German war economy had been repatriated by the end of 1945. Now, the position of Jews is rather different, and it's one of the great ironies of history that um, in late 1945, the number of Jews in Germany actually increases. It increases fairly substantially, as some Jews who think about going back to their former homes in Eastern Europe discover, A, there's nothing to go back to. not merely their whole families have been murdered, their whole communities are murdered, um, people have taken over what's left of their homes, and there's a tremendous amount of anti-Semitic prejudice still there, or fueled in addition because they're people who now moved into what have been the homes of Jews and see Jews coming back as a threat, and they don't want to give up the places which they've now got um, to live in. And there are a number of are really quite vile anti-Semitic incidents um, immediately after the war. The most uh, prominent one in in, in Poland, a really quite vicious pogrom. And so a number, a fairly substantial number of Jews, we're talking about over 100,000, end up in occupied Germany, particularly in the American zone. I mean, they don't want to stay in the Soviet zone. The British don't want them because of the problems in Palestine. And uh, they think that they probably get the best treatment in in the, in the American zone, and in particularly um, in particularly in Bavaria. Then there's the problem, as you mentioned, of the people who had been um, evacuated from cities which had been threatened by bombing during the war. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of children, for example, who had been uh, evacuated during the war in the Kinderlandforschung uh, programmes who then have to be repatriated and re- or, re- or relocated back into the cities from which they came. And in cities which have been largely bombed, and something which perhaps we, we could have mentioned earlier, um, cities where there is extreme housing shortage, and we're talking about a quarter of Germany's housing stock being destroyed as well. Um, so that there are huge numbers of people who have been displaced huge numbers of people who are homeless, I and mean, we're talking about a country which is of, of a population which to a considerable degree is largely uprooted and homeless, but living alongside uh, in a country where, at least in some of the rural areas, which hadn't been bombed, particularly in, in, in the south and south, in the west of Germany, which still appear fairly intact, but we're looking at a country a quarter of, a quarter of whose population is homeless
0: and it, and 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 this all exacerbates the economic problems that the country is facing uh which did seem to does seem to vary between the the zones in in several ways but uh if you look at the shortages the the loss of the the simple market mechanisms supply mechanisms etc um you've got a a burgeoning black market which often happens in situations like this um and shortages of foodstuffs and some basic commodities and all of that is on top of all of the the labor dislocation and things like the simple lack of places to live that you've just been describing
1: yeah well i mean the black market was there already before before may of and there was a thriving black market and um during the last period of, the, of nazi rule as well so that wasn't something um which uh, which necessarily was new i think if one wants to take a look at the economics or the economic problems which is, is uh, rather an understatement, to say the least, um, in, in occupied Germany. I think one has to look uh, more specifically at the different zones, because the different zones not merely were governed by, uh, by powers which had different visions of the economy, but they also had very different conditions. Um, if one takes a look at the four zones, probably in, in many senses the British had the, the greatest problem because they were in in control of what had been Germany's main industrial area. And because it was in the West, it had been the main target for bombing. And it was just devastated. And the problems of supply, food supply, housing, and so forth, in in the war region, were particularly acute. And so the, the, the problems which the British had, in, in ensuring food supply for the population were particularly acute, and they were probably greater than the problems which the Russians had, which the Americans had, which the, uh, which the French had. Um, probably in, in, in the first months after the occupation, the area, the, the occupation zone, which recovers initially the most quickly is the Russian zone. Um, and the British are having the most difficulties. The French are playing a rather different game, and the French are concerned in the months after the surrender to try, at least to some extent, to integrate the economy of the French zone into the French economy, um, particularly in, 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 in the Tsar region. Um, with the Americans, the problems are somewhat less because they have areas which are more um, more agricultural. So, I mean, so the problems are huge, but the problems are also different. By May, June 1945, I mean, to say that Germany has economic problems is, as I said, an understate. <laughs> I mean, the economy is, is it's just not functioning any longer. Um, there's very little in the way of production. As I said, the, the infrastructure is largely gone. The railways don't work. On, there's no communication. Um, the, the, there's no fuel, there's no electricity, gas supply is destroyed, sewage systems um, have been destroyed, there's no food distribution, um, water, uh, water supply um, it, it has been cut. And so there are enormous problems of just trying to get things to somehow functioning again at the most basic level so that economic activity can resume. Now, one of the interesting aspects about this, for me at least, is the fact that people don't starve Um, during during the months months immediately after um, the Allied soldiers occupy the country. And it was certainly predicted um, by uh, German authorities um, in early 1945 (laughs) that there were going to be severe food problems in the spring and the summer even if Germany had managed to hold up the ally. Um And at least initially this doesn't happen. And I think that one of the possible explanations this not happening is theft on a massive scale, particularly from, from Wehrmacht stores by the German population. The Germans like to think that they don't steal. It's foreigners who do stealing. But I think that's uh, pretty plausible. And the problems with food supply and so forth don't really come until the autumn the autumn of 45, the winter of 1945 and 1946. There are also huge problems which are created in effect by the Allies because the borders between the occupation zone, also become economic borders. And so uh, supply, transport across uh, these borders can cut. Um, and... Uh, then there's the problem of, of requisitioning uh, people who, say, run companies who were rather concerned not to put their heads up above the parapet because of thought, well, if we start producing things again, this will just provide the Allied authorities to, to expropriate us. So they had to be a bit careful. And then um, there's, the, there's the problem of dismantling. Now, the dismantling that the Russians undertook is probably the greatest, and is famous, but they certainly weren't the only one. I mean, the British did it as well. The French did it as well. Though um, so there was a huge problem of the dismantling of of German industrial after the war. I think uh, the German economy was in uh, worse than a mess uh, <laughs> at the time when they surrendered in May forty five.
0: Well, well, pushing on from some of these specific issues that that. Uh... Uh, face Germany in 1945. Perhaps we can move on to some of the the things that, that we can talk about as perhaps a, a bit of a legacy. Um, and one one of the big themes that comes out uh, in your book is is this desire, this, this yearning for stability to come out of this. Complete chaos. And there's a quote that uh, it's worth uh, reading back. It's, there was a hunger for community, for order, permanence, rootedness, for a home. Paradoxically, perhaps in this way, the shock of 1945 helped lay foundations for the conservative normality and political stability of West Germany during the 1950s.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the basic, these, these underlying the, the book I mean this also needs to be seen in in other in in, in context um, because the room for maneuver in Germany was very, very limited indeed, um, limited sovereignty first occupation, then li- limited sovereignty, but there is this overwhelming desire to get out from get out from under uh, the horrors left behind by the second world war and I think we may go on to talk about it in a bit I mean, Germans seeing themselves uh, very much uh, as victims. The particular ways in which um, Germans came through 1945, I think, contributed to this. The fact that things were, for so many people, so desperate that they had basically to see to their own daily needs, daily concerns, couldn't really think or devote much time. Um To transcendent issues, because they basically need to find to get a roof over their head to get enough to eat to be able um somehow uh to uh, to uh, to put their lives their own personal lives back in order, and this becomes focused, and at the same time we shouldn't forget that in the early months of the occupation in all four, regions, the occupation was really quite harsh um I should just perhaps say in, in passing. That large numbers of Germans were arrested. In fact, the Americans arrest uh, more of under the provisions of their automatic arrest program uh, than mm-hmm. the Russians do. I mean, mm-hmm. they don't stay in in, in in American activity as long as those people arrested in stay in Russian activity. But the Allies did come down like a ton of bricks. Probably the British were the, the, the least um, brutal in their uh, imposition of of an occupation regime. Actually, the British come out of this, I think, reasonably, uh, you know, comparatively reasonably well. Um, but we shouldn't forget the what I refer to as the iron tutelage of the Allies, the limited room for maneuver, the shock of 19 desperate concern um, for stability after this profound um, instability. And also, there's a, a a widespread feeling amongst a lot of people that they'd had their fingers burnt uh, by politics, and didn't want to get involved. And also, a lot of people had been, um, to a greater or lesser extent, um, involved in what had gone on during the Nazi regime, and perhaps had other reasons for keeping their heads below the parapet.
0: Perhaps this is also one of those areas where the totality of the defeat is so important, because in a sense, it it, it purges the country. Um, psychologically, they really could rebuild the country from you know the mo- the no, most basic yeah, needs well, up. One
1: shouldn't underestimate the, the, the level of continuity. I don't. I, I wouldn't talk about um, you know so much talk about purges. I mean, it certainly leads to a purging of politics. I mean, nobody who's prominent in the Nazi period um, has a political career in the post-war period. But if one takes a look at just about every other area of endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, whether this be in, in the economy or whether this be civil service or whether this be in universities, um, one sees, as one probably would expect, a tremendous degree of, uh, of continuity, and not merely in, uh, in in the Western zones, but there's an element of this in the Eastern zone. I, mean, I remember my colleague, Luke uh, Niethammer years ago saying that the two most successful political parties in the West and then in the East. The CDU in the West and the SED in the East <laughs> were both the parties which were most successful in integrating former Nazis into their ranks and uh, integrating them and effectively neutralizing. So I'm don't, i I'm not sure whether purging is, is the right term, mm. but actually dealing with uh, with the, the problems in the overhang, because what else were you going to do with these people? Quite you know, 12 million people who'd been members of the Nazi party you couldn't just forbid them all from ever working again and, and, and imprisoning a lot of them. Mm. Uh, so, um, I mean, there, there is a strong element of continuity, and this strong element of continuity, or elements of continuities, is something that historians for the last 20 or 30 years have concentrated on um, really quite considerably. To the extent where the idea of zero-hour Stunde Null is something which um, probably most German historians um, do not want to accept.
0: Let, let's move on to one of the most extraordinary aspects of the book, certainly for me as I was reading it, uh, and that is the sense of victimhood that seems to take hold. Um, You actually mention in the book that this was not just Germany, for instance, Japan went through a similar uh, situation, but it was almost as if, you know, the sense of agency that they had actually uh, brought this upon themselves had been removed. And and it's got a, you know, this uh, sense of victimhood remains alive to some extent, for instance, when people look back at the area bombing campaigns of the British and, you know... uh, a kind of equivalence between Dresden and some of the crimes of the Nazis. Can you just tell us a bit, bit about how this actually did take, uh, take hold?
1: Well, if, if one, coming back to what we were discussing before with regard to the horrors that people had experienced and the huge difficulties that they faced um, in mid-1945, and many of these people faced these difficulties as they saw, through no fault of their own. I mean, if you think of you know a family in Pomerania or Silesia or East Prussia in the East, which gets uprooted from their home, and one shouldn't forget that in the course of this uprooting, something like half a million Germans are killed. Um, and they would be, that's through no fault of their own, or being victims of the bombing. And the fact of this overwhelming wave of violence at the end of the war, I think, Kind of washes away um, a lot of memory. Memory is the right term, or focus on the degree to which, really, until forty three, forty four, 44, many Germans had really profited from the war, um, had profited from uh, being on top of this sort of racist hierarchy which had been set up by the Nazis, and this this is destroyed in, in, in the last months of the war, so that the experience of the Third Reich and the experience of the Second World War no longer is about the time when the Wehrmacht was conquering the whole of Europe and uh, during the period when uh, the German government was trying to destroy the entire Jewish population of Europe, but instead it becomes concentrated on the horrors uh, of the last three years of the war, horrors which Germans see as being visited upon them, so that their war um, become you know it's, it, in a sense it's it's what you said it's it's not Auschwitz it's Treblinka, um, it's not the people that they uprooted from their homes in in Belarus in forty three in forty four it's the Germans who get uprooted from their homes in nineteen forty five, and one shouldn't overlook the fact that um, you know. That The suffering that Germans endured in forty at the end of the war immediately after was terrible, and this isn 't in any sense to try somehow to justify either what they thought or what had, had had gone on before, but I think we need to recognize the fact that people coming out of this experience will think of themselves as victims, and I think that we need perhaps to back away a little bit from making from rushing to, to making moral judgments about that. I mean, there are some instances which really are pretty hard to stomach. For example, when I came across discussions, I think it was in Bowdoin in Lower Silesia um, in 1946 and 1947, where Germans are complaining about the Jews and how the Jews are getting everything. Um, in post-war, you know, Germany stroke Poland which considering what had just happened in the, uh, not too far away um, a couple of years before borders on stomach turning. But nonetheless, I think we need to try to understand how these sorts of attitudes were formed and then what their effects may be. And this provides um, a way through um, the, the problems of the post-war period and setting up um, new lives perhaps on the basis of sort of a mythical view of the past or selective memory of the past in the post-war period. We also shouldn't forget that a huge number of people had dirty secrets, um, that they didn't want to discuss, that they didn't want to admit to others, and perhaps didn't want to admit to themselves, and to concentrate on the degree to which they were victims rather than the degree to which they had been complicit in the criminality of the regime. Um I think that shouldn't be overlooked. And one should and when one speaks about the criminality of the regime, I don't mean just the obvious awful acts of extermination of human beings, but sort of little bits of of, of advantage that one can take um by sort of getting your little piece of the racist action. Um you know, because a lot of people were able to improve their careers as a result of this, because they were at the top of the heap and the uh, people of so-called Lester were were at the bottom. A lot of people were incriminated, complicit, and contaminated by this regime in all sorts of ways. And the fact of their victimhood and their concentration on their victimhood provides a way out
0: can you, uh, I'm talking to you now, um, from here in London. You're over in Freiburg. Uh, now Germany's obviously felt itself politically thrown into center stage by what's going on in Europe at the minute. Um, yes, one may say so. Yes, one may say so. so perhaps this is another understatement. Um, can you talk, as a historian who's looked closely at, uh, at, you know, the beginning of the modern Germany, in a sense, in this uh, awful year of 1945, can you look back at that and, and put your finger on exactly what it is in 1945 that still resonates today, especially in some of the changes that are taking place? Well, in,
1: in, in a strange way, I think that it doesn't, in many ways, it doesn't resonate quite so much anymore, and that's that's perhaps the really interesting thing, and I'll, I'll come off with of it. I think it's it's partly a generational thing. Um, over the last 10, 10 to 20 years, 10, 15 years or so, there's been an upsurge in discussion about the end of the war and the immediate post-war period, about the bombing and so forth. Um, there's been a tremendous interest in this, Um, but it's an interest which is rather different and has a a rather different place in public discussion um, than these historical developments had 30 and 40 years ago, and I think this is because of a generational shift and also because of reunification. During the 1950s and into the 1960s, the people who were building up their careers, making their careers, putting the country on its feet again and so and so forth, were people who still had been adults during the Nazi period. Then one gets to the late 1960s and one sees the coming of age of the first post-war generation. That is the generation of people um, who were born after the war and then challenged their parents. I think one could maybe call it the 68 generation who really challenged their parents. It was one German uh, observer once, "They never as a generation had such a club with which to beat their parents as they the children of, of, of the people who did live in Nazi Germany. Then 20 years later, it's no longer a matter of the children challenging their parents, but the grandchildren wanting to ask their grandparents what it was like. And now you have the generation who had experienced um, Nazi Germany as even as young adults or as teenagers are dying out. And so the relationship of it is really quite different. Um, and the relationship also to um, to Eastern Europe and Eastern Germany is quite different, um, because now you, know, you can go to Poland and, and there's no problem, when you can visit the places where your grandparents or great grandparents had lived with anybody feeling, oh yes, the Germans want to have it back. So I think that much of the you know, the, the political um, concern, political content of the a concern about 1945 um, is largely gone, and it's become a much safer topic um, for people to deal with. It comes up um, in public discussion, and it's certainly come up um, in recent weeks, months, briefs, where people have heard that the Nazi occupation of the Nazi occupation of Greece was just horrific. I mean, this is our, uh it's just really awful. So. It, you know, it, it comes up again in, in various uh, that, but I think in terms of the way people think about themselves here, I um, don't think it figures all that much. I think it's really important in the country, and it also has a lot to do with the reunification, creating of a new federal effect after 1990, the end of the Cold War, That is the end of the Cold War consequence of the settlement
0: Thanks very much indeed for this interview. Um, I think that uh, especially because the phone line se- seems to be breaking up a little bit and misbehaving, perhaps it's, it's time to wind things up with just a very, very simple final question. That is, uh, a- after this, which I found uh, a-, a brilliant book, uh, can you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yes, well, I've decided to uh, pin you in a sense along <laughs> the the theme of violence. What I want to do is try to do a sort of general book dealing with violence, the violence in the first century in Western America, but not so much violence itself, but what I see as the increased sensitivity toward violence and what's something that I think one can trace in so many areas mm-hmm. of, of human history, whether this be the way the military behaves, um, changes in the legal code, attitudes toward intimate violence, violence at home, violence in school and stuff. And I see that, particularly since um, the middle of the 20th century, that there has been an enormous increase in almost an obsession, um, sensitivity toward violence, um, which I think, at least in Western countries, is something qualitative to do, and I want to try somehow to understand that.
0: very interesting thanks very much indeed Professor Bessel and thank you for providing us with such a, a cracking book to read thanks very yeah, much thank you. and that was Richard Bessel the author of Germany 1945 a book that I wholeheartedly recommend apologies if some of his last answers were a little bit tricky to hear this is Nicholas Walton from the New Books Network wishing you a good day from here in London